Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this word. God, I pray that you would help us this morning to understand what the word says, what it meant, what it means to us now, Father. Uh, We can't fully understand what you want to communicate to us through your word without help from the Holy Spirit. And so I pray now that the Spirit would move upon us and open our hearts and open our minds that we may hear your word and know you more and love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Deemer. Good morning. We are continuing through the book of Acts today, just continuing on our journey through the book of Acts and studying in this series called He Reigns. Uh, Normally, I do break away from whatever series I'm doing to um, observe Sanctity of Life Sunday and give a message on the sanctity of life, but just felt led by the Lord to continue to to truck on through Acts right now. But I am going to repost uh, today a sermon we gave two years ago on Sanctity of Life Sunday that I know impacted a lot of people in our church and um, was, was um, I think, a very a timely word from the Lord then, and it still is today. And so um, if you guys want to hear a message on the Sanctity of Life, I'm going to repost that on our website this afternoon along with this sermon. And also, it's an opportunity to point people to a message on the Sanctity of Life if you're having those discussions with people this week. And I'll also remind you that we have... Uh, plenty of copies still of the 180 video, um, which is a tremendous apologetic um, approach to abortion and dealing with the issue of abortion. It also shares the gospel very clearly in, the, um, in this video as well. And we're, we have extra of those in the back there. And this is a good week to be, be sharing those with people and passing those out if you know someone that would like to, um, that did you like to give that video to. Um, Let's see if any of the children in here know what this, what these are. When I was a kid, um, at least in my, my mom's house, I, I saw she had a room downstairs where she had a bunch of these things, and um, especially my grandmother's house. These were all over the place. Um, does anybody know what, what these are right here? Not as much these days. I don't think people do this as much these days, moms, as much as my grandmother did and stuff, but I, don't, I just grabbed a couple out of this packet up here. I don't even know what these are supposed to be, uh, be specifically, but do you know what this is, this is? Anybody? Any kids? What is it? It's a sewing pattern. That's right. These nice little flimsy things are, are sewing patterns. And, and so I have, a, I have a, uh, a, um, oh, a packet up here that this is for sewing a, a dress. So I have no idea what part of the dress this would be right here, this long thing. But this is part of a sewing pattern. Like I said, people don't sew as much these days as they did when my grandmother um, was, I remember her, she had a whole room, it just had these little things all over the place. Um, And uh, the reason I show this to you this morning is, okay, this specifically is a pattern for a dress. And you wouldn't take a sewing pattern for a dress and use it to try to to come up with a a pair of slacks or a or perhaps a shirt or something like that, you would use the pattern for what it is. If you went and took this pattern for a dress and tried to do something else with it, you'd, well, you'd end up messing things up. And I got to thinking about that this morning, and I went and found this uh, pattern this morning because my wife does sew some, and we have some patterns there, although she hasn't sewn a dress, I don't think, ever. I don't know. But anyway, she does do some, some sewing. And uh, matter of fact, this morning I saw this beautiful two young ladies here in matching outfits. And I thought, your mommy did that, didn't you? And they said, no, no, she didn't. So a- anyway, uh, but the reason I, I thought of this this morning before I came was that really that's what we have in this text this morning is Paul giving us in this um, passage of Scripture through his words and really Luke giving us through his recounting of this event a pattern for leadership in the church. And one of the challenges today in the church is we oftentimes try to take other patterns outside of Scripture and apply them to church leadership. Maybe we look at the way the business world operates and we say, okay, that business is functioning great with this structure. Let's just copy and paste that to the church. That would be like taking the wrong pattern. And trying to apply it to the church. 
or maybe governmental structures. And, you know, let's take this and let's just have everyone vote on everything and let's just follow, do things the way it would work in a democratic society and just apply it to the church. And, well, that too would be taking the wrong pattern and trying to force it on to the church. And a lot of problems seem to creep up in the church. And, and I believe, honestly, if you're part of Baptist life, you are very aware of what a lot of those problems are that creep up into the church simply because we have, in, to a large degree, abandoned the very clear patterns set in Scripture for church leadership. And this text in particular is one of those texts that help us see the pattern. And matter of fact, this text, Paul begins by just, uh, Luke begins by giving us Paul's words. And Paul actually uses himself as an example of how leaders in the church should act. Let me tell you where we're going today. Because um, this sermon today is going to be a little bit different than some of the sermons we, uh, we do here in the sense that we're going to look a whole lot at, at Paul's example here, at, at the example of what he did, partially because that's exactly what Paul wants us to do. If you're an expository preacher, you're going to go to the text, you're going to preach the text that is there, and Paul comes to these Ephesian elders, and he lays forth his own life as an example that he wants them to follow. Now, there's pr- plenty of doctrine here as well, and plenty of meat here as well, and we're going to get to that. Matter of fact, I'm not going to be able to get through this passage of Scripture in one Sunday. I'm not going to be able to get to the, through this passage of Scripture in two Sundays. It's going to take me at least three, maybe four, to get through Acts 20, verses 17 through 38. So, I'll just tell you where we're going today. We're going to get as far as we can today, and I know today we're running a little bit behind schedule because of sanctity of life and all that, but just hang with me. Uh, we're going to push forward and, and look at this. There's There's really two parts of this passage of Scripture here in regards to what Paul is saying. First, there's the section of Scripture where Paul gives himself as an example to follow. He gives an example to follow for for the Ephesian elders. And then he gives them a charge to be kept. And then he comes back to himself as an example. Okay, he gives them an example to follow and a charge to be kept. This is a very touching and moving text. Like I said, it's going to take me a little while to go through it. But I want to give us a little bit of background here. Here's the title for the message, Paul's, for today's message, Paul's Example of Gospel Ministry. Now, for, as way of recap, you guys know as we, we talked last week, Paul has, on his third missionary journey, he's gone all the way down through Macedonia, which is part of Europe, uh, ended up in Greece and Corinth, spent three months there, wrote the book of Romans while he was in uh, Corinth, probably. He was planning on heading back across the sea over here to Syria for to be in Jerusalem by, by uh, Pentecost. I mean, sorry, by Passover. But he found out about a plot against his life there in Corinth, probably from a lot of Jews who were on a ship, a pilgriming ship, heading back to uh, the, the Holy Land. And so instead, he circles back, makes a U-turn, and goes back through these churches, strengthening them. He has with him nine men, the fellowship of the offering, as I called it last week. These nine men who are with him, they're collecting an offering as they go through, an offering for the church in Jerusalem, which is going through a a really hard time. And he comes back through, strengthens the church. As he's coming down here, he's trying to get to Jerusalem now by Pentecost. He missed Passover due to this threat against his life. Now he wants to get back in time for Pentecost. While he's on the road here, he keeps getting word and, and testimony that that he knows and the Spirit's testifying to him that things aren't going to be good by the time he gets back to Jerusalem. But he wants to get there in time, so he goes down here, and he gets to Miletus here, and he decides not to go up into Asia. Okay, not because he didn't love the people in Asia, and Ephesus is in Asia. He loved them very much. He spent three years in Ephesus. Uh, but he wants to be able to get to Judea in time for the um, Pentecost. And he knows if he goes back up into Asia, it'll probably keep him from getting there on time. But he does love the people, and he calls to him the elders of the church in Ephesus. He loves them very much, and he loves the church very much. And so he calls the elders to himself and wants to speak to them. So this text is him speaking to the elders. And we can learn a lot about elder leadership from this text today. Now, you may be saying, well, what does this have to do with me then? Because I'm not an elder. 
So do I just tune out of today's message? Um, you know, is this just for elders today? Uh, what do I care about this since I'm not an elder? Well, some of you in here may be called to be elders at some point, and so you need to be listening to this. But more importantly, all of you should know how elders function in the church. We all should. And you all serve under elders or pastors. We'll use that word interchangeably today. You have elders and pastors. You need to be praying for your pastors, and you need to know what to be praying for them. As we look at Paul's example here, you should pray these specific things for your elders in this church. You should look for these things as God raises up new elders in the church. Plus, these standards that God is setting for elders are in reality the standards for all believers, only that elders are to set the pace and to set the example, set the uh, set the example for the whole church. The only real distinction between the holy living that elders are called to and that everyone else is called to is that Scripture makes it very clear that elders should be able to teach. Outside of that, all the things we see Paul model here for the elders should be modeled for all believers. And we all should be growing by God's grace in these different areas. First, I want to make three quick observations about elders from this passage before we look at the example that Paul sets for them. Three observations. Okay. Number one, I want you to look at the number of elders. Let's, look, let's think about the number of elders here. We don't have a specific number, but we know there's more than one. Verse 17, now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders, plural, of the church, singular, to come to him. This is the, this is the pattern in all the New Testament. This is the pattern in the whole New Testament that there is a plurality of elders in the church. A plurality of elders, a singularity of churches. Of churches. It doesn't say churches here, it says church. Acts 14.23, we see the same thing. And when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, singular, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. That's the pattern. Plurality of elders in each church, singular. Titus 1.5 says the same thing. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained in order and appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. As they went and established churches in these towns, they weren't big metropolis areas. And they, didn't establish, they didn't go in and start a Methodist church and a Baptist church and a whatever church. They started a church, singular, and they appointed elders, plural, for each church. James 5.14 is another example of a plurality of elders. It says, is anyone, is, anyone sick, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders, plural, of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him, with oil in the name of the Lord. So let him call for the elders, plural, of the church, singular. John MacArthur says, Much can be said for the benefit of leadership made up of a plurality of godly men. Their combined counsel and wisdom help assure that decisions are not self-willed or self-serving to a single individual. In fact, one-man leadership is more characteristic of cults than of the church. One-man leadership is more characteristic of cults than of the church. I think that's a wonderful observation that, that Dr. MacArthur makes there because it's true okay, that churches should be made up of a plurality of people leading it. And when you see these churches that seem to follow a celebrity pastor, that's more in line with cults following a person than following the pattern that the Lord has set up for the church. Now, Singular, I mean, single pastors over churches, you know, developed over time. In our country, a lot of it developed from the fact that circuit preachers would go around, especially in the South and in the West, these circuit preachers would go around and preach, and, and sometimes they would, uh, they would only be in uh, one town for one Sunday a month, and then they'd go to the next town the next Sunday, and the next town the next Sunday. But one of, the, one of the failures of that process was that they failed to set up elders in the churches. And the churches in America, particularly in the South and in the West, became very dependent upon one man, the preacher, showing up at the right time to preach the message. And that's not too distant past, really. I mean, if you read, I had a little book that uh, someone in this church lent me about the history of Ebenezer Baptist Church. And it wasn't until the 1900s before uh, they had, uh, well, actually it was, 
well into the 1900s before they actually had a preacher who was there every Sunday. They had a circuit preacher going around Hebron, Ebenezer, all these other different churches. And it, there became this unhealthy, there developed this unhealthy dependence upon one man, on a one-man band. You ever seen the Pixar, those little Pixar movies, those little shorts that they put before uh, the, the, the main movie? Do you ever see the one called the one-man band? And there's this one guy who has all these instruments on, and then there's another guy who has all these instruments. Have you ever seen those one-man band guys? They have the drum, they have the cymbal, and they maybe have a fiddle or something else. And they have all these instruments attached to them. Well, in the Pixar movie, there's two of these guys, and they're trying to impress this little girl who has one coin left because they're both trying to get her, get, get her to give, her their, give them their, her last coin. And so they're trying their hardest to impress, and they just keep going more and more. And they go start going crazy with all their instruments. It's a funny little short film. But I think that's what happens in churches when you get one-man leadership. You get one-man bands, and these men try to do everything in the church. They may not be gifted at every instrument, but they're going to try it. And they're going to go for it, and they're going to try to impress the people. And they're going to try to get what they can from the people in the sense that they want to get that praise and adulation and do everything they can to show that, hey, I'm the man. And that's what happens when we don't follow the biblical pattern. The fact of the matter is God has gifted multiple men for each church with a lot of different talents and skills. And I mean, there's been plenty of times that, that I've been in churches and, and you, you see a, a situation where there's a senior pastor and, and maybe people don't like his preaching, but they sure like this about him. Boy, he's such, a, he's such a, a, a personable guy. I just wish he preached better. Or maybe vice versa. Boy, he's a great preacher, but boy, he's as cold as ice and it's so hard to get to know him. And, well, that's because the, the one-man band can't do everything. And, God, and, and God's designed it for us to have a multiplicity of elders in the church. And so that while one man may be gifted more at preaching and public proclamation, another man is gifted at one-on-one discipleship. And that, that's okay because God has designed it to be that way, to have a multiplicity of elders. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in abundance of counselors, there is safety. Second thing to notice here, observation, is the title for elders. I've said before, and, and we've said here in our church and tried to make it clear that the word elder, overseer, and pastor are all interchangeable. And perhaps nowhere in Scripture is that more clear than in this text right here. Verse 17 it says, and now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. That word, presbyteros, elders, is one word here for this role, this office in the church. But then you get to verse 28 and it says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. The word overseer here is a different word, episkopos, okay? And then we see the word shepherd or pastor in the verbal form when Paul says care for the church of God. He's telling them to shepherd the church of God. So all three words are used here in this text. Elder, overseer, and shepherd. And we also see it in other passages as well. Titus 1.5 Paul says this to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, so now he uses a different word, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So there, Titus uses both of those words interchangeably. And then Peter, in 1 Peter 5, 1, uses all three words when he says this. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock, that's the word for pastor, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And there's the word for overseer in the verbal form. So in this text, as well as other texts, we see elder, overseer, shepherd, or pastor. That's the same word used interchangeably. And finally, the third observation from this text before we get into it is the calling of elders. Verse 28 says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. The Holy Spirit 
has made you overseers. Who makes elders elders? The Holy Spirit makes elders elders. It's not a career. Okay, it's not a career path that someone chooses. It's a calling, a divine calling to be approached with the utmost prayer and discernment. It should be recognized by the church and the church should pray for elders to be brought up in the church by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God puts the desire in the heart, the giftedness in the person, and the church along with the other elders through prayer and the word recognize the calling. I believe with all my heart, and I may be wrong, it's completely up to the Holy Spirit, but I believe in 2012, the Lord will be adding elders to this church. And so you, we all should be praying for the Holy Spirit to do that. For the Holy Spirit to move and to add elders in the church. Because it's not something we can just drum up. You know, it's not something Demon and I can just say, okay, let's pick March 1st. We're going to have an elder selection. Let's just do it, okay? It's something the Spirit of God has to move in the church to bring to pass. Let's move on. Remember, remember I said this text is made up of two parts. One, an example to follow, which will have more to do with the character of an elder. And secondly, a charge to keep, which we'll go into more next week or in the next couple of weeks, which has more to do with the function of the elder. So first of all, let's look at the example that Paul wants us to follow. Paul starts by reminding them about himself, about his ministry, about the way he ministered to them. He specifically calls the Ephesian elders and starts by talking about himself when, when, about himself when he says, you yourselves know how I lived among you. Okay, so Paul, from Paul's example, we learn that elders should be, number one, men of consistent, visible holiness. Consistent, visible holiness. Now why does Paul bring attention to himself? Some have speculated that Paul might be defending his own ministry here against false teachers who were tarnishing his name and his ministry. That's possible. But Paul's purpose here is to strengthen the elders. The reason he's drawing attention to himself is he's saying, hey, listen, I want my life to be a pattern for you to follow. I want my life to be an example for you. Now, I've often said that the Bible is not a book of heroes. Our primary task in the Bible is not to pick it up and to look at David or or, or Saul, or even Paul, and say, okay, let me just copy that person's life. The Bible is ultimately a book about God, about Jesus Christ, and we see God's glorious and gracious work at, lives, at work in the lives of the people in Scripture. But at the same time, I do believe, based upon passages of Scripture like Hebrews 11, that we are to look to the lives of believers in Scripture. And we are told to follow some examples, and when the scriptures clearly tell us to follow an example, we should do so. And Paul tells the church here to follow his example. But he doesn't do so out of a prideful disposition, but out of love. He does so in order to give evidence that the gospel message he is preaching is true. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. So as Paul says, look at my life, look at the example I'm setting. He's not saying, boy, because I'm such a great guy. He's saying, no, look at my life because the grace of God, Jesus Christ, has been at work in me. That's the only reason I want you to look at me. That's the only reason we should look at any of the saints in Scripture is because of the work that God did in them. The grace of God at work in their lives. See, where we trip up and we make the Bible into a book of heroes is when we look at men in Scripture and then we become man-centered and think, like, what can I do that David did or that Paul did or that so-and-so did instead of saying, wow, look at what David did or what Paul did or what so-and-so did and let that point to the grace of God at work in them and say, I want to operate in such a way that I'm consistent with Paul or whoever in the scripture, and therefore I need to rely on God. It is not I, but the grace of God that is in me. His life backed up the fact that the gospel was at work in him. His life was evidence that the gospel was true and accomplishing sanctification in him. It was not pride that drove Paul, as we'll see here in a minute. So from Paul's example, we learn that elders should be men of consistent, visible holiness. Verse 18 and when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves, you yourselves know, where did my water go? It's down here. Thank you, Noah. 
not fully recovered yet. <clears throat> you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Paul had nothing to hide. He was a man of visible holiness. Paul had lived and served among the Ephesians for three years. And the elders of that church, they had observed his life. They had observed his ministry. By these words, he is establishing himself as an example to follow. Okay? And if anyone was out there bad-mouthing his ministry, he could simply say, Look at my life. I have nothing to hide. Any man of God will be opposed at some point in his ministry. And the best way to defend himself is simply to live a life above reproach so that his enemies have no ground to stand on. God will defend the man who has nothing to hide. That's why Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 as well as Titus in Titus 1 that an elder must be above reproach. But he not only said it, he lived it. Elders should be able to say, as Paul said in the book, in his letter to the Thessalonians, he said, For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Paul's life backed up the gospel. In his classic book, called The Reformed Pastor, Richard Baxter. If you haven't read the book, it's a, it's a good read. The Reformed Pastor, he wrote this. He said something similar to this. He said, don't unsay what you say from the pulpit by the way you live your life. Don't unsay what you say from the pulpit by the way you live your life. And that should be the charge for every pastor, is not to unsay what he says in the pulpit. This, of course, does not mean sinlessness. The Apostle John made it very clear that if any of us thinks we're without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Paul is not claiming sinlessness either. Read Romans chapter 7. Paul struggled with sin just like all of us do. Paul is not claiming sinlessness. Neither can any pastor, should any pastor claim sinlessness. Matter of fact, all pastors have failed in almost every way. You look at Romans, I mean, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And you read those qualifications for elders, and you read things about not being angry, not being quarrelsome, and things like that. I guarantee you, every pastor has at some point failed in those areas. And then you get to the, the, the section about, well, being, a, being the husband of one wife. Well, does that mean every pastor has committed adultery? No, but Jesus sets the standard of adultery so high that if you've ever even looked at a woman in lust in any sort of way, then you've committed adultery. Therefore, a pastor, just like every other man walking this planet has committed sins and has failed. But the question is this. What's the overall pattern of his life? Is the gospel at work in him? Are we seeing victory in his life? Is he consistently above reproach? Is there evidence that the gospel is sanctifying him? Or does he have a pattern of sin that disqualifies him? Because just as Paul tells the elders in Ephesus to imitate him, elders are to have a visible holiness because they set the example in the church. 1 Peter 5, 2-3 says this, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Being examples to the flock. Titus, Paul tells Titus something similar in Titus chapter 2, that he is to be a model of good works. He is to be a model of good works. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. As a pastor, if this verse doesn't drive you to your knees, begging God for mercy and grace and for his grace to be at work in you, then I don't have any idea what passage of Scripture can. You know, this is a, this is a, a terribly weighty pat message to prepare. <laughs> because Paul's speaking primarily to elders. Like I said, it, there's application here for all of us. But elders should live in such a way that the rest of the congregation can imitate their faith. That is a very scary, scary proposition. This should cause each and every person aspiring to be an elder, aspiring to ministry, to stop and examine themselves. For we know that elders will incur a stricter judgment. James 3.1 Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. 
for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It's not that James was against the teaching of Scripture. James loved Scripture. He wanted Scripture taught, but he says, not many of you should teach. Because you're going to incur stricter judgment. Because the teaching and the preaching of God's Word is a heavy thing. A heavy thing. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. The elders of this church will have to give an account. An account for each and every person under their leadership. Deemer, if that doesn't make you squirm, I don't know what it does, but it makes me squirm. Because I can know, I know right now, I know right now people that I haven't followed up with well enough, that I haven't discipled well enough, that I haven't taught well enough, and, and all I can do is fall on my knees and beg for God's grace and mercy to continue as a pastor and for God to give me grace to grow in these areas and to change and become a better pastor and to be above reproach the way Paul calls for us to be. It's scary when I think of these things. And that's why Paul tells Timothy, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't just go out there and start appointing elders. Don't be hasty about this thing. Because this is serious business. The pattern that Scripture gives us is not a CEO. If our pattern of elder leadership is modeled after the business world, we will not feel the weight if it is modeled after the government world, we will not feel the weight. The only way to feel the weight of eldership and pastor leadership in the church is to go to the scriptures. And it's so much more huge. I don't care how heavy Obama's job is or any of these other guys running for that position of president of the United States. The scriptures make it very clear the position of being a pastor in the church has a much heavier responsibility than even those roles have. It's a frightful thing to stand in this pulpit. And if the day comes that I don't feel butterflies the moment I get up to preach, then something's wrong with me. I've never once in a sermon I've preached ever not felt butterflies when I got up to preach. And those Sundays where I have felt, well, I've got this pretty down. Boy, that's the Sundays you really get crushed by the Lord. This is a heavy thing. Paul's, from Paul's example, we also learn that elders should be men who humbly serve the Lord. Who humbly serve the Lord. I'm going to move a little bit quicker through these next points. You may have thought I was going to write there, humbly serve their congregation or their church. Well, they do that too, but the scripture here says that they serve the Lord. Pastors and elders don't work for the church or for the congregation. They serve them, but in doing so, they serve their Lord, their only master, their true boss. Serving the Lord with all humility is what Paul said. Paul consistently referred to himself as a bondservant or slave of Christ. The word serving here is the verbal form of doulos, slave. Paul says he was slaving for the Lord with all humility. Galatians 1.10, Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or God? Or, or am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant, a doulos of Christ. An elder must know who he's working for. He must know who he is a bondservant of. He serves the people of God, but ultimately he is a slave of God. Because there will be times when the people of God do not want to go in the direction that God wants them to go. And a good shepherd doesn't give in to the will of the people. Instead, he serves, an, he serves as an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. As 1 Peter 5 teaches us. The sheep will sometimes want to walk off cliffs. And the shepherd must not walk off with them. Thank you. The sheep will sometimes want to walk off cliffs. That's just human nature. And so the, the, the role of the elder is to stand there, even when it's not popular, and say, no, we're not going that direction. We can't. We can't do that. Because I serve 
Jesus. On this day, this Sanctity of Life Sunday, there are thousands of churches across the, 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 the nation today observing Sanctity of Life Sunday, but there are also thousands of churches across the nation today that are not observing it, that are flat out ignoring it. There are churches all across this nation, and some of them you can't still call churches, who have walked off the cliff because the culture was going that way. And the people, the sheep, wanted to go that way. And instead of having bold, brave men who are willing to be called bigots, narrow-minded, fools, and say, no, we're going to do what God says, they instead walked off the cliff with the sheep. Elders are called to serve the Lord first and foremost. If we know who our boss really is, well, that's why humility comes. If you know who your boss is, then you will be humble. If we understand that if we get the gospel, then also humility comes. You may be saying that Paul doesn't sound very humble here because he's telling us to follow his example, but you'd be wrong. Paul was a very humble man. I think that he's a humble man because he has a stronger grasp of the gospel than any other man who ever lived. Paul has a stronger grasp of the gospel than any other man who ever lived, and that's what makes him humble. Paul would say this of himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Paul didn't view his ministry as if he was something special. Instead, he understood it was a gift of grace purchased by the blood of Christ, Ephesians 3, 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul was humble because he got the gospel, 1 Timothy 1.15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul was able to say, follow my example and do so in a humble way because he understood that he was the foremost of sinners. You see, pride creeps in when we convince ourselves we're not that much of a sinner. And when the pastor begins to think he's better than everyone else out there. You show me a prideful pastor and I'll show you someone who has not fully grasped the gospel. You show me the pride in my life and it's evidence that I haven't fully grasped the gospel. Because I have areas of pride that I struggle with as well. Paul knew that Christ alone was his sufficiency, 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. He is not a prideful man. Nothing came from him. He says, but our sufficiency is from God. The gospel kills prideful pastoring. At least it should. At least it should. Another thing here from Paul's example. From Paul's example, we learn the elders should be men who passionately and sacrificially serve the Lord. So here when Paul says serving the Lord with all humility, that's the first way that he serves the Lord, but also with tears and trials that happened to him through the plots of the Jews. Paul was a passionate man. He was moved to tears by the churches. His heart ached over them constantly. An elder must be a man who's willing to ache for and with his flock. He cannot be cold and indifferent. He must be willing to have his heart ripped apart over and over and over again. I had a pastor friend of mine tell me, Oh, within the last couple of years, he said, Steve, you're going to have to get used to something. He said, you're going to have to get used to people ripping out your heart, stomping on it, and walking away. You're going to have to get used to it over and over and over and over again. That's just part of leadership. That's part of being an elder in the church is that you've got to be willing to experience pain. And in this case, emotional agony that Paul experienced for the churches was tremendous. He had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. We read that in Romans 9. That was over his lost Jewish kinsmen. But he also had anguish and affliction in his heart and many tears for the churches, as he mentions in 2 Corinthians 2, 4. And later in this passage, we read in verse 21, that he did not cease day or night. To admonish everyone with tears. He had an inward toil and pain. Much of it very private. I think most elders could tell you. Most pastors will tell you. That they have a lot of inward pain. A lot of inward toil. But also he had physical pain. And trials. Sometimes very public and humiliating. 
in this case through the plots of the Jews. We know that in Paul's life he was stoned, he was run out of town, he was beat, he was all called all sorts of names, he was ridiculed. Plots were made against his very life. And God had told Paul such in Acts 9 that he was going to suffer for his sake. Pastors must be ready and willing to endure suffering. Painful internal suffering as well as external physical suffering. And rarely do we face that today in our country. Okay? Now here we, today in our country we judge how, uh, how successful a ministry is by how smooth it's going. Right? That's a successful ministry over there because they got bling, bling, bling. They got this, this, and this. And that's how we judge a successful ministry or successful church. Go to the pastor in India or Pakistan or in Iraq or in Egypt or in the Sudan who every day and perhaps right now are following Paul's example through suffering and the deadly plots of men and ask them if the success of the church is judged by how smooth things go. Paul didn't let suffering or difficulty deter him. He had a single-minded focus. In verse 22, we see how he set his face toward Jerusalem. He was going to keep on going. He says, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace, of the grace of God. Like Jesus, Paul sets his face like flint toward Jerusalem, knowing that his very life was in danger. Paul knew there was something much more precious than this physical life. His best life was not now. Instead, he wanted to finish his course well, even if it meant he was to die. For to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So I want to hit on one more example. Paul, there's two more in your notes here. I want to hit on one more today. And the fifth one we're going to come back and deal with next week in much more detail. From Paul's example, we learn that elders should be men of hard work and happy generosity. I cut, skip down to verse 33 now. Jump over to verse 33. He said, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Ministers have often gotten, and oftentimes rightly so, a bad rap about their work rate. I dare say some of us bring it on ourselves I think it was John MacArthur, but I'm not sure. I heard this recently. He said, if your pastor is a good golfer, he's probably not a great pastor. If your pastor is a good golfer, he's probably not a great pastor, and you could probably replace golfer with a thousand other things. He must be a hard worker. He must not be greedy for gain. It's one of the qualifications of being an elder that Paul tells Timothy and Titus, and at first that Peter also mentions in 1 Peter 5. Instead, he must be a man of happy generosity. Where do I get that? From the word blessed here. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is happy. The word blessed means happy. Happy, joyful, blessed to give, to be generous. My joy suffers when I don't give as much as I should. And I praise God because I was not a very generous person. And I still need to grow much, 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 much more in my generosity. And God brought a wife into my life who was a person who was gifted with generosity. And she's very generous. We give away, has given away furniture without me knowing about it before. And things like that. And, and it's been an example of generosity in my life to serve others. Gives of her time and her money. And, and God has used my wife to grow me in that area. And I have found and I believe that some of the most happiest times in my life have been the times when I've given the most. And the times where I've been the most depressed have been the times when I have held on to stuff the most. Some of the most unhappy people in the world are people with a lot of money. And some of the happiest people in the world are people who don't have a lot, but what they do have, they give away. Why? Because again, we understand the gospel. We understand the gospel. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Now, there is one final point here, like I said, that I will not be able to fully develop today, and it's the best point, it's the meatiest point, it's the most important point, so I'm going to give it to you, talk just a little bit about it, and give you an idea of where we're going next week. Here it is. From Paul's example, we learn the elders should be men who courageously preach the word of God. 
This is Paul's main focus of this text, by far. He's given us all these other examples, but if you read the rest of this text here, he talks about how much he taught and preached and proclaimed and testified to the Word of God. Let me just read it to you. Verse 20. He says, How I did not shrink, that's the courageous thing, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Listen how many times he talks about declaring or teaching or testifying. From declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But I did not account my life, now we're in verse 24, but I did not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming, there is again the kingdom, will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That phrase, I did not shrink from declaring to you, begins, starts that section off in verse 20, ends it in verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. It's like bookends for this text. That's his whole point. Is that he did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. Five different words. He talks about declaring, teaching, testifying, proclaiming. He says declaring again. So really four different words. But he says them different times. Declaring, teaching, testifying. He says twice. Proclaiming, declaring. And six observations about his teaching. There's value in it. It was valuable, profitable. Where it was done, in public and in private. And the content. It was of repentance and faith. It was of the gospel of grace. It was about the kingdom of God. Ultimately, it was the whole counsel of God. It all comes back to the gospel. This is Paul's primary message. He wanted them to follow his example of gospel proclamation because ultimately it was the gospel, according to Romans 1.16, that has the power to save. This is what makes this not a man-centered message. It's because Paul brings them back to the gospel. Everything about Paul's example is that he wants men to follow him because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has radically transformed him and led him in a radical devotion to God. Visible holiness because of the holiness of God. Humble service because he's been bought with the price. Sacrifice and pain was so that he could share in the sufferings of his Lord. Hard work and happy generosity were the outflowing of a man who knew hard work who worked hard yet knew it was not, Christ, not him but Christ in him doing the work. And a man who could give away everything because to live for, was Christ but to die was gain. Paul's hope in the gospel to save and to sanctify him was what pushed him forward. And it was the only hope that he was giving the Ephesian elders. Look at verse 32. He says, And now I commend, to you, commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and keep you... And give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He commends them to God and to the word of his grace. God, Paul's hope was that the gospel would establish these Ephesian elders. That was the pattern he wanted them to follow. Now as we get into this next week, we're going to look at those te- that teaching element there. What is all this stuff that Paul talks about? What is this gospel of grace? What, what, why is it profitable? What does it mean, the whole counsel of God? And then after that, we're going to get into Paul's charge to the Ephesian elders. And we'll see if I can get it all in next week, but it may take a couple of weeks to do that. But for this morning, we look at the life of Paul, not so that we'll be man-centered, not so that we'll say, okay, you know, you need to follow uh, men and do what, what men do, but to show you that God was at work in Paul's life. The gospel had taken effect. Not only did it save Paul, it was transforming Paul into a man of God. And it was the evidence that God was at work. And so Paul could boldly say, hey, follow my example. Follow my example. And you know what? I'm scared to say that. I'm in that position because God has placed me as an elder in the church, as is Demer. But it's scary to say that because I know there's so much work that God still has to do in my life. I think if all of us are here, we're honest. There are so many areas of work that God has to do in our life. And so the key to that isn't for us to say, okay, how can I be more like Paul? The key to that is to say, how can I submit to Christ 
and his work. How can I, how can I appropriate, how can I leverage the gospel in my life to where the gospel takes hold of me in new ways? How does the gospel change my giving so that I can be a happy, generous giver? How does the gospel change me so that I can be a harder worker? And to go to the gospel over and over and over again and let it do its transforming work in our heart. Because that's where the power is. The power to save. The power to sanctify. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes now. And we'll close with a word of prayer and one song. And then we'll go to our Bible study classes. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you right now. And I thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace in my life. A text like this today really, really, really is overwhelming to me. I feel so flustered even delivering it because I'm being hammered by it. And there's so much work that you've got to do in my life. And there's so much work you're doing in the lives of every single person in this church. And then collectively as a body, there's work you're doing. And God, don't let any of us ever think we've arrived. Don't let any of us ever think that, yeah, we've got it down. Yeah, everyone, look to me. I figured it all out. But instead, let us look to Christ. Let us look to the gospel. Let us look to the power of the word of God to do a transforming work inside of us. Let us fall on our knees and confess our sins. Father, I pray for this church, Lord, as you raise up more elders. I, I have been praying for, and I believe, Lord, you have a desire for Harbins to, to have more than just two elders. For us to grow in the number of elders we have. But, but Lord, to force these things would be foolish. And I've learned the hard way. I've learned the hard way of trying to force things and make things happen at the church. And how foolish that can be. And so God, we pray, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. For Harbins, that you would lead us, that you would raise up men. Men, godly men. Men who are above reproach. To serve you, to live for you. Men who can... Who are able to teach, whether it be privately, one-on-one, -on -one, publicly from the pulpit. Men who can teach the gospel. And so God, we ask, Lord, for you to do this. Because if we try to do it on our own, we try to muster this thing up. If we try to begin to follow patterns that are not from the scripture. Oh my goodness, we're just going to make a mess of things. Oh God, we just pray, Father, for your mercy and for your spirit to lead us in the right way. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.